Today is lesson five in our current Sunday teaching series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture. I hope that you have a study guide, one of the study guides I've written to coincide with this series. And it's not a lot of reading, it's not a lot of work, it's just a little bit of a teaser, if you will, for you to uh, just kind of spark your interest through the week and say, man, I want to be there on Sunday to hear what that lesson is going to cover. And then it has ample room in these notebooks for you to take notes. And on that note about taking notes, I have lost my notebook that I've written about this sermon, about this teaching series. And I believe it's laying around here somewhere. And here's how we can identify it. I am blessed with the spiritual gift of writing in tongues. So if you open up one of these workbooks and you see that there's a page of notes uh, that you cannot decipher, it looks like ancient hieroglyphics, that's mine. And I would love it so much if uh, you would help me locate that. But anyway, today is part five in our teaching series, Revolution, Christ Over Culture. In our previous lesson, as we're going to uh, resume this, this series this morning in Acts chapter 3 shortly, I want to remind you in our previous lesson, we ended on the heels of that experience after the first New Testament Pentecost. And we specifically looked last Sunday morning at the after effects of that initial experience on that first New Testament Pentecost. On the heels of that experience, we saw that the disciples, the followers of Jesus, had experienced an incredible transformation. Their numbers of their body of believers had, had instantly went from about 120 that were just kind of gathered around for a week or so, or 10 days to be exact, after Jesus' resurrection. And they just kind of hung around, they prayed, they waited. And when the day of Pentecost had come, the feast that celebrated the giving of the Mosaic Law, they experienced something incredible. And we oftentimes kind of sort of get hung up on that experience of Pentecost. And because we get so, uh, uh, so engulfed by trying to understand that experience, we fail to really understand the experience itself and the effect that it produces not only in our lives, but we can't really begin to fathom that until we begin to develop an understanding for the effect that it had in the lives of those believers. Now certainly we could stand back and we could say, well, pastor, we know that the effect that it had because it drew people in. And the incredible experience was this, that people began to hear the gospel in their own native language as Simon Peter was declaring the truth to them there that day uh, around the Temple Mount area probably or the upper room. And we could say that was incredible. We could say that it was incredible that, that suddenly 3,000 people, give or take a few, had now committed to the Messiah. They committed to follow Jesus after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We could say that was awesome, but that's really not all of the story. We saw last Sunday as we took an entire weekend to just look at the final verses of Acts chapter 2 that something incredible happened after Pentecost that was probably equally as, as unprecedented as the event of Pentecost itself. I've told you multiple times that the Jewish culture of the first century that Jesus was born into was very broken. And some 33 years later when we arrive here in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3, not much had really changed. I believe Jesus had begun the path to restoration, but not much had really, really begun to transform there. And so the Jewish culture 
because of their oppression to the Romans and their perception of that oppression, they had, they had embraced division. So you had four different uh, uh, sects, four different uh, congregations of Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And each of these had their own ideology, their own theology that they would follow. And Judaism, if you can imagine it, was very divided. But get this, after the experience at Pentecost, the believers of this new, uh, what was then embraced as a new way of Judaism itself, a new uh, sect of Judaism itself, the believers began to experience such a unity that Acts chapter 2 actually details for us, they began to sell, to liquidate the things that they possessed but they did not need, and they began to give to each other who had a need. And so the church, as we would know it today, began to experience an incredible unity that was otherwise unprecedented in the time frame that they lived in. And I believe we could stop right there. And we could pray, God, allow us to have a like experience. The society that we live in today is so broken, and it is so divided, and it is so uh, tense, and there's so much division. But yet I believe that through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is an unprecedented unity that can begin to be experienced when we come together in one heart, one mind, and one accord, pre, uh, 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 pre-purposing to build His kingdom above our own. Now let me backtrack just a moment as I've given some background for from last Sunday's lesson, I want to move forward into Acts chapter 3 today. And we saw that at the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 47, that things really looked big, okay? And this uh, unity that was experienced in in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost is described as being a a large unity. Chapter 2 and verse 47 basically tells us that they're kind of going about in unity. Uh, They're praising God. They're having favor with all the people. That means it was before any persecution had been thrown there way and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved and so it looks like the church has went from this to that okay and this is really interesting and it's very very integral into what we're going to study today because Luke paints this picture Luke was an incredible writer an intellectual probably second to only the Apostle Paul of writers of the New Testament but Luke paints this picture at the end of chapter 2 of this huge operation of the church it's just growing and growing and growing and growing and getting bigger every day and then all of a sudden as we enter the third chapter things are going to drastically change do you remember in our introductory lesson into this series, how I told you that Luke's strategy for his uh, his, his strategy for his writing for his documentary was like two funnels, one placed upside down and one right side up and connected together at the small nozzle. We go back to the beginning of the gospel story in Luke's gospel and it begins with Caesar, uh, with the leader of the entire known world, the Roman world, had sent out a, a, a census to be taken. And so it begins like this and then by the end of the gospel we end at Jerusalem at the cross at a very specific small location and then Acts picks up and there are two works that are connected to one another and Acts begins right there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and guess where it ends at the end Paul 
is in Rome. And so Luke is an hourglass work, if you will, that does this. And in the middle of that, we're going to see multiple minor transitions. They're major, really, but they're minor in comparison of the grand scheme of Luke's writing. And as we exit chapter 2 and we enter chapter 3, we're going to experience that this morning as the spotlight begins to transition from the perspective of how big the church got and how incredible the church was growing and all the awesome things God was doing. And now we're going to totally, completely change it up and we're going to zoom in to a couple of specific individuals, one of whom, one of which whose story is going to absolutely transform our mindset concerning the character of God. Join me in Acts chapter 3, and let's read there about the first eight verses together. After this, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man who had been lame or crippled from his mother's womb was being carried along. And they used to set him down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms or good deeds of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began to ask to receive alms from them. But Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them at his attention, uh, give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And they seized him by the right hand. And Peter raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And then with a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk, and he entered the temple with them. And he was walking, and he was leaping, and he was praising God. So we have literally gone from this perspective that looks at the church as just growing bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger every day. And, and I think this is really incredible because we've experienced what God can do. And Luke, in his intellect, intellectual ability and in his spiritual experience and the pairing of the two together, he's saying here in his writing, guys, this is incredible that you've experienced what God can do. Ephesians 3.20 is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above everything we ask or think in our minds. But that is not merely sufficient. Let me present this to you this morning. You can understand God's supreme capability and still not understand his awesome character. But you cannot understand his awesome character without then experiencing his supreme capabilities. So Luke is saying here, you've experienced what God can do and you've heard about what he can do and, and you've been caught up in all the uproar of that. But now let me tell you about a story that happened that reveals the very heart and the very character of of God. Let's zoom in, if you will, from this drone and let's leave the multitudes, let's leave all of this incredible experience behind and let's really see the heart and the character of God who is writing this story. And it begins with personal introductions of a man named Peter and a man named John. And I want to tell you a little bit about these two guys before we get into the main character of our story. Now, Simon Peter was no stranger to Luke's writings, right? He was the guy who, in the upper room after the ascension of Jesus, kind of sort of took the lead role of the church of those 120 people. And then he was the guy on the day of Pentecost who, when everybody began to say, what on earth is going on? Simon Peter was the guy who stood up and said, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. And he began to 
to proclaim the gospel. And he was definitely known throughout Luke's account and Matthew, Mark, and John's accounts as well of the gospel. Peter, Simon Peter, was probably one of these guys whose mouth constantly got him in trouble. Do you know anybody like that? Don't look at them. Don't point fingers at them. Don't touch your wife or your husband here. Uh, don't put your arm around them and say, baby, he's talking about you. But we all know people like that who just blurt things out of the mouth before they ever even think of it. You know, we're going to process it after we say it, not before we say it. Simon Peter, no insult to him. He may be waiting on me at he- you know, when we get to heaven like this, but Simon Peter was kind of one of those guys, or so he strikes me. He strikes me as being that guy who would always just vomit out what he was thinking before he ever really thought about it. But in the book of Acts, he is a different character than he was in the Gospels. In the Gospels, he was so wrapped up in building his own perception of the kingdom that one time he said something and Jesus literally replied and referred to him as Satan and not as Simon Peter. Now, how would that make you feel? If you said something to our Lord Jesus and he looked at you and said, listen here, Satan, you know, that's probably not the most uh, encouraging statement one could hear. Simon Peter also had a resume that was full of negativity. He was one who basically forsook Jesus whom he had followed in his darkest hour as he hung on the cross at Calvary. He was even terrified of a little servant girl that we never hear any more about in the remainder of Scripture as Jesus was being crucified. He was the one who cursed three times declaring that he did not know who Jesus was. But after that resurrection experience and after After that ascension experience and after walking with Jesus in his resurrected body, something incredible had happened in Simon Peter's spiritual life in his walk with Jesus. And now in in the narrative of Acts that Luke is writing, Simon Peter is using that bold personality to lead the church. And let me say to you this morning, so many times in the church we, we look at people who become believers, they're converted, and we think we've got to make them have a personality like us. We've got to turn them into church people and not necessarily turn them into Jesus people. But no matter how different your personality is from mine, I believe God can use that. And Simon Peter is a complete, perfect example of this scenario. He is not a stranger to the stage. He stands and boldly declares the word of the Lord. So it's not, really, uh, it's not really out of his nature that he is conversing with this poor beggar on his way to pray at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice on a random afternoon. And then we see John. This is John's first solo introduction in Luke's writing of the book of Acts. Now John had been previously mentioned in the roll call of the 11 disciples who were there in the upper room. But this is the first time that Luke really says, Okay, let me bring John to the stage and let me introduce John to you. John, like Peter, was part of what theologians refer to as Jesus's inner circle. He was one of these couple of guys that Jesus would kind of take with him on personal private endeavors. They were on top of a mountain when they saw Jesus transfigured and two saints from the Old Testament appeared to them. John had walked hand in hand with Jesus but now he's just beginning to enter the stage of the book of Acts. In his early life he like Peter had been zealous and on one occasion as he was following Jesus he requested that Jesus call down fire from heaven and consume some people who essentially he didn't agree with. So here are two very bold, eccentric 
personalities, Peter and John, walking to the temple. But we tell so much about their character just by what they are doing, by their geographical location, by the fact that they were walking to the temple at the hour of prayer. You see, every devout Jew would have went to the temple at the third hour, the hour of prayer. That's the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. It's also the same time in which Jesus died, same time of the day, not the same day. But so they would have went to the temple and they would have prayed. And this gives us a, a, an incredible insight to how Simon Simon Peter and John and the remainder of the church in the book of Acts viewed themselves in relation to Judaism. We believe that they viewed themselves as just the, the true Jewish movement. They were not perceived by themselves as Jewish rebels. They did not say, hey, we're leaving the Jewish faith, but rather they perceived themselves as being those who were true to their own heritage because they had accepted the Messiah. And they continued to go to that place even though people who were worshiping there they didn't agree with. Can y'all believe that? That they would still go and pray and worship with people that they didn't agree with? Man, that makes a church quiet, doesn't it? And they continued in it because they believed and they were sold out and they were dedicated to what Jesus was doing. And they said, if he's going to do anything, it's going to begin right here. And so they're going to the temple. They're going to pray. They're going to worship. All these good things are going to happen. And then Luke throws someone else on the stage. We don't know his name. We don't know his uh, hometown that he reigned from. We don't know who his parents were. We don't even really know for sure if he was Jew or Gentile. I believe he was a Jew because I believe at this point, pre-Gentile inclusion of the book of Acts, had he been a Gentile, there would have been an even bigger uproar of negativity than what there was. But we don't know anything about this guy other than the fact that he was crippled from the moment he came out of his mother's womb. The scripture specifies that here in Acts chapter 3. And this crippled beggar now enters the stage. Luke says, let me introduce you to somebody. And you're going to think, Luke, what in the world are you doing? And so many of us have read this story so many times. We've read Acts so many times that we just completely miss what is being presented to us. But Luke is saying, let me show you not just what God is capable of doing, but let me show you what His character is really is. He's laying at the beautiful gate. Luke refers to this gate of the temple as beautiful. We're not really sure what this gate is because only two times in scripture, and it's right here in Acts chapter 3, both of them are, is a gate referred to, a temple gate referred to as the beautiful gate. There's some debate on which gate this really was, but nonetheless, it was probably overlaid with more gold and uh, more attractive appearance more appeasing to the eye than any other gate on the Temple Mount. It was probably the gate that would lead into the court of the Gentiles and the court of women. But regardless of what gate it was, this man was laying there. The scripture says that he was being carried along as Peter and John at the ninth hour at three o'clock in the afternoon were walking to the temple. This man was being carried along. The word carried along is just, the words carried along 
long is just one word in the original Greek. And Luke uses this word. It's bastadzo. And bastadzo is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 when he says, bear one another's burdens. I think there's something incredible going on here. I don't think that Luke is literally saying this guy is being carried to the temple as Peter and John are walking to the temple. I believe he was already there. But Luke is presenting for us the ideology that this man's entire life, he has had to be supported by someone else. He was incapable of providing for himself on his own. Here's another reason why I believe this is the case. Because Luke says this man who was lame from his mother's womb in verse 2 had been carried along. And then they also used to set him down by the temple gate. I don't think that there's any accident that Luke kind of gives two different descriptions of what's going on there. Here is a man that is being presented to us as being completely, totally helpless. Someone else has had to do everything for Maybe you're here this morning and you're facing a situation, a dilemma in life that you just feel completely, entirely helpless. Buckle your seatbelt for a moment because we're going to look into this story and we're going to see an incredible way that this helpless, hopeless, crippled man experiences a transformation unlike anything in his wildest dreams. Now that we've seen Peter, and now that we've seen John, and now that Luke has introduced us to a crippled beggar, there's going to be a conversation that's going to play out on this stage. And this conversation is going to initiate from the beggar as he begins to ask alms of people. The three pillars of Judaism would have been uh, prayer and fasting and almsgiving. So he was at the right place at the right time to ask for money to be able to pay his electric bill and order his groceries through Walmart pickup. He was at the right place at the the right time to be able to make sure he was going to have something to eat for tomorrow. And he begins to ask for alms. He begins to ask for money. And Simon Peter looks at him and he says something totally off the radar. He says, silver and gold I do not have. Now, if you're a poor beggar and begging is your only hope for sustenance and for life-sustaining ability, the last words you want to hear from somebody is, I don't have any money. So can you imagine the way that his spirit would have sunk and he would have thought, man, I've heard about this guy. He's the one that preached a few days ago and all these people responded. And that guy with him, they used to walk with Jesus. And I thought for sure they would have something to give me. But Simon Peter's statement was far from over. He declares then, but what I do have, I give to you. Now gather with me here, because Luke is about to present on the stage another character that is far greater than Simon Peter. He's far greater than John, and he's going to change this beggar's life forever. His name is Jesus. And Simon, uh, Luke, Luke throws Jesus on the stage through the words of Simon Peter because Simon Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Rise up and walk. And then 
Imagine in this man's mind how he would have digested these words mentally and how he would have perceived them and what he would have thought about them. And then all of a sudden, somehow he begins to have feeling in his, in his otherwise, crippled, otherwise crippled legs. And Simon Peter looks at him and he doesn't just leave him on his own. And I know this is such a small, minor detail in the scope of this presentation, but this is a picture of discipleship. The body of Christ cannot leave new believers to fend for themselves, to learn the word of God for themselves and just find out who Jesus is based on what the pastor declares on Sunday morning. We must be willing to get where they are at and lift them up and hold them up and carry them up and bear their burdens as Paul declared in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2. That is the biblical blueprint that we've been talking about for the church that God laid out. But we've somehow forsaken that within the church in our modern society. But Simon Peter reaches down, he picks this crippled beggar up, and he begins to help him up, and he begins to have feeling in his legs. And this unexpected uh, occurrence is now going to take by storm the hour of prayer that afternoon at the temple. Something absolutely incredible has happened in a time that was otherwise ordinary. And what is most incredible about this is not necessarily that Jesus made this crippled man walk, but rather that Jesus made this crippled man walk. It's not about the power as much as it is the personality. Let me present, to you, present this to you like this. We go from 120 believers in Acts chapter 2 who are gathered in an upper room and they're praying and they're looking at strategy and they're looking at, uh, uh, they're looking at order and their, their uh, structure within the church. Leadership structure was the term I was looking for. They're looking at all those things and then they pray and then they experience this thing on the day of Pentecost and all these people are saved and it's just numbers and numbers and numbers and big and big and big. But God says, wait a minute, my heart is not in the numbers. My heart is not in the multitude. My heart is not is in, in necessarily in this massive growth. But let me show you my heart by introducing you to that crippled man. If we were writing the narrative of Acts, chapter 3 would not exist. It would not be in there because how in the world does this guy fit in to this incredible story. A nobody crippled beggar. We go from this incredible experience at Pentecost, this great unprecedented unity. All the believers are there together. They're going to go pray one day, and then they encounter. How does this crippled guy fit in to this story? Let's look at the after effect. Verses 9 and 10, the scripture says, He began to walk and leap and praise God in the 8th verse, and all the people in the ninth verse began to see Him and, and walking and praising God. And they were taking note of Him as being the same guy who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to Him. They noticed, yet again, they noticed what had happened, but not what was being revealed, which was the very character of God. But they're curious. 
They say, what's happening here? What what, what has caused this man that we have seen every day for weeks, for months, for years, laying crippled at the gate that's beautiful? What has caused him to be able to now walk and leap and praise God? And here comes Simon Peter again in the 12th verse. And he's saying, oh man, Man, I am glad you asked me. I can't wait to tell you. And just like you did on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up in the 12th verse and he begins to declare an incredible lesson to them. And for time's sake, I'm not going to read it in its entirety to you this morning, but it carries on through the remainder of the third chapter. And at the end of the third chapter, Peter declares Jesus. He said in verse 26, For the first God raised him up, his servant Jesus, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And if we fast forward into the fourth chapter, we see that this is the result at the fourth verse. But many of those who had heard Simon Peter's message believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Here's another stage that is set. This Simon Peter walks up to him and begins to declare the word of God and thousands of people are converted. But once again, if we're merely caught up in the after effect, if we're merely caught up in the experience, if we're merely caught up in what God is showing us that He can do, then we miss who He was. Who was this man? Who was this crippled beggar? Who was He? He was God's avenue to declare His character. Who he really was. You see, the experience of the Holy Spirit in Acts is not so much about God saying, let me show you what I can do, as it is God saying, let me show you who I am. Not let me show you what I can do, but let me show you who I am. Had God's ultimate will and desire, which it was, been to save the multitude? He could have just said, Simon Peter, come over here. I want you to stand up on the Temple Mount, and I want you to begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And God could have made people supernaturally just caught their attention and made them listen to Simon Peter. But God said, that's not how we're going to do it. I want you to notice this nobody. And this nobody... He's going to be the guy that his life is going to be transformed. And because of that life transformation, I'm going to set the stage to reach the multitudes. This was more than a crippled, helpless, hopeless beggar. This was the guy that God said, I am going to use his story. That I'm writing in his own life. And what would happen if we begin to view people as the potential individual whose whose life God is going to turn into a stage through which we can reach the multitudes. This spotlight transition goes from the multitudes to one individual and then back in chapter 4 verse 4 to the multitudes once again. We see God's incredible plan. Was this man, this nobody's life, to be a platform to reach the multitudes? The transformation of he who was otherwise inglorious. God says, that's who I'm going to use. 
to reach the multitudes. Isn't it incredible that in the midst of the mass of creation, God didn't just so love the world in John 3.16 that He gave His only Son. And He didn't just so love the church and give Himself for it in Ephesians chapter 5. But Paul said in the book of Galatians that He loved me. He gave Himself for me. The powerful display of the heart of God was His care and concern, and not merely care and concern, not merely a feeling of empathy, but a desire to involve himself in the life of that nobody and change him completely and forever. I want to talk to two people this morning. First of all, somebody who is here, and you've experienced Jesus, and he has completely and totally began a transformation in your life. Things are on a trajectory to never be like they were again. And you're thankful for that. But you're just kind of questioning in your mind, you know, God's never going to use me like He uses my pastor. He's never going to use me like He uses my pastor's wife. He's never going to use me like a church staff member or like some great believer. But He's changed my life. Can I say to you this morning, don't buy into that lie. Because the transformation you have experienced in your life is the platform that God has built. It's the stage that God is building out of the mess that He brought you out of that He wants to use to declare His truth if you just trust Him this morning. And the second person, you're here this morning and maybe you just feel like a complete nobody. You feel as helpless and hopeless whether you've experienced Jesus in the past or no. You feel as helpless and as hopeless as this poor pitiful beggar outside the Temple Mount some 2,000 years ago. This morning I want to encourage you. Just as Jesus desired to work in that man's life, He desires to work in yours. Yes, I really, really, really believe that. This is why we do what we do. Week in and week out. This is why there are uh, discipleship Bible studies multiple days a week now. This is why we preach the gospel and sing worship songs on Sunday morning. This is why we take the risk that we do in life known as faith. is because we believe. No matter how much of a nobody you may feel like. No matter how hopeless your situation in life is. God says it's not over until He says it's over. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, we're so thankful for Your Word.